Hi everyone. I'm Will. And I'm Kaz. And we're going to be having a conversation about The Last of Us 2. This is not going to be a review or even really a proper thorough analysis of the game. Um, it is merely a discussion, albeit a, a very long one. Two friends uh, unpacking the thoughts about the game pretty much firsthand. We've been holding out for quite some time now, uh, waiting for this opportunity to finally talk about it. So be warned that there will be spoilers regarding possibly everything from the get-go. Yeah, we're going to try and uh, structure this in a chronological manner as, as far as the game presents events. But because there are inevitably things at the end that inform some of our thoughts at the beginning, so there's no guarantee that at any point in the conversation you're, you're sort of safe from in-game facts or thoughts. Because we are going to try and sort of present holistic thoughts. So it's safe to say if you haven't finished the game, if you haven't seen everything, then be advised, we're going to be hitting all the events of it. All right, let's dive in. So this being a part two game, I think it's only fair we start by talking a little bit about our experience with the first game. I'll give some background. I played uh, The Last of Us 1 back when it initially came out, but I haven't played it since. And I haven't actually played Left Behind at all. Oh, really? Uh, so I don't have I don't have that context. Interesting. Yeah, I have some awareness of it. I know that it involves a friend of Ellie's, maybe even a potential romance there, and I, I sort of have an idea of where it went, but I didn't actually play it. I didn't see how it panned out. So personally, I remember getting it and playing it a one. I was still in film school, and what was surprising was that it got a lot of my film colleagues' attention. And for a lot of them, I mean, it got a lot of them into gaming or pay attention more to gaming, not necessarily become gamers themselves, but um, take it as a serious storytelling platform. But yeah, from for me, I, um, I think it managed to marry in the best way the gameplay with the narrative, especially in this kind of genre of like action games. And I still remember the the effect of that ending. I was not alone when I finished it and uh, the person next to me just remained quiet throughout the credits as, as he died, simply because it hit so hard, that ending. And it's not the kind of ending that one usually sees in games. For me, The Last of Us 1 was a big surprise because I have not traditionally been a fan of the Naughty Dog mold, I guess I, you might say. Yeah, um, I've played all the Uncharted's, and the Uncharted's up till that point, I wasn't as much a huge fan of. This is an Uncharted cast, so I won't go too deep into that. But you know, there were at least a lot of superficial similarities in how The Last of Us was being presented uh, that led me to believe. Well, I probably feel similarly about it. You've got another third-person over-the-shoulder game where, although I guess Uncharted's not technically over-the-shoulder, it's just another third-person game where. Uh, you know, shooting is your principal action. It's got a, a quote-unquote quote cinematic approach. Right. Uh, Naughty Dog games have been compared time and time again with uh, movies because of their structure and general approach. And as much as I hate the word cinematic, it kind of strives for that general filmmaking allure. Yeah, it's got a story it wants to tell. You don't You don't really factor into it as a player that much, and you're just sort of witnessing you know set piece after set piece but for me it just kind of fell short in the the gaming aspects of it uh, i felt you know the platforming was kind of autopilot-y shooting at least in some of the first installments i didn't enjoy as much but the last of us ended up being 
just different enough in how it used everything, uh, as well as very different in some other key manners that even the things it inherited from that series that you might see uh, ended up responding much more positively to in the context of The Last of Us 1 than I had in Uncharted. We maybe go into this some with The Last of Us 2 pacing of course. Uh, comments we'll get into later. Uh, but basically, the game was a pleasant surprise for me. Uh, and I, I did, you know, I I liked the storyline, but I would say that for me, it was mostly about actually enjoying a Naughty Dog game as a game, uh, hmm. first and foremost. And uh, for me, the, the storyline, I think the biggest thing was I just came away kind of impressed with the honesty of the, the ending. Right. Uh, I don't know that the whole storyline really impacted me as much, but I, I felt like there was a... Um, being true to its characters and their motivations in that ending and not taking an easy way out that I wasn't expecting to see. So I, I liked it on the whole, but it, it, you know, the story didn't necessarily blow me away outside of the context of that. But that's kind of where I come from. I remember at one point, I think you were very surprised by the fact that I once said, I love the gameplay of the first game so much. I was quite upset without the multiplayer the, the, right yeah exactly they're not being a multiplayer yeah. <laughs> because the multiplayer of the first one was actually probably the most addictive multiplayer i've played <laughs> i spent like a su entire summer playing that uh, which is insane that is that is shocking to me you're you're the only person <laughs> i look i haven't had a, a finger on the pulse of the the last of us multiplayer community i don't i don't have much insight to it at all but uh yeah, you, I think you're the first person I've ever heard say that. So, yeah, what uh, if you have any more thoughts on that? Like, <laughs> what is it that, that drew you to that? And uh, are there any reasons you could see them not having included in this one? Like, like, I guess it was a serious disappointment that, you know, this was purely a single-player uh, outing. Okay, so the first thing is, is well, it is a disappointment. I understand why it is. this game is a lot bigger than <laughs> than the first one. There's a lot of work put into this, a lot more work put into this. And the second reason that like kind of diminishes the disappointment is that there is a multiplayer sort of experience coming. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure if it's going to be a standalone thing or if it's going to be an added thing, but they did say that uh, basically even the multiplayer itself grew bigger. Uh, they wanted to do more with it, so more power to them. But it's weird. I, I want to preface the fact that I am not a multiplayer person. I barely play games for multiplayer. I, I'm usually a, a single player person. I've been I've been like this since I've engaged firstly with this medium. But yeah, there was something about The Last of Us that just I don't know, the everything just made so much sense for me multiplayer wise and it just made me come back. Like the sessions are short, they're short bursts. It goes very, very fast. And I don't know, it's just the maps, the the crafting, everything just seemed Right. I don't remember there being any infected in the multiplayer, which I, I always felt was a missed opportunity. Maybe a feature for them to, to toss into whatever this upcoming mode is. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that wasn't really a feature in the first game in the single player either, to like have humans and right. infected outside of the DLC, where they a little bit tease that. Oh, Left Behind has uh, mixed faction fights. Yeah. Then. That's cool. Well, speaking of, um, you know, that focus, which does definitely come up a lot more in the second game, maybe we want to move on into what the people are here for, the Last of Us 2 conversation. I know you guys really wanted to, to get a big breakdown over 
the last of us one multiplayer for a few more <laughs> hours still <laughs> you've mentioned the sincerity of uh, its ending and yeah the characters and I, and I think to get properly into the talks about a second game which is a part two and I think it deserves that title everything sort of weighs on this ending right in the gradient from like episodic to I don't know, of a piece, serial. This is very much a serial game. Uh, it is not episodic in the slightest. It is built heavily on what came before. And in fact, I'm glad you, you revisited what I, what I said earlier regarding the ending and its honesty, because honestly, the very opening scenes we get kind of rubbed me a bit wrong. Um, okay. We open in, in Jackson with Joel confiding in Tommy um, oh, regarding... Yeah, this conversation where he's basically just going over just how heavy and dark the actions he just took were effectively. I don't know. So much of the power that in the first ending was kind of the, the understatement of it and how there was so much understanding conveyed between Joel and Ellie at the end in their conversation without really saying anything. You could sort of see all the suspicion and the worry and the, t- the this new wedge in their relationship in that conversation without him to say anything. And then our opening is uh, Joel being very explicit about a number of things. First, to Tommy, you could view it as a previously on The Last of Us. It's such a dumb thing because it undermines their whole commitment to a part two. In what sense? Not that I disagree. This silly recap of, well, previously on The Last of Us, let me explain to you not only what happened, what transpired, but the meaning of it. The whole thing of, well, she needed her immunity to mean something. You don't have to spoon feed me now. And I understand, apparently I've uh, read somewhere that Naughty Dogs thought their uh, numbers for people who would have played the first one and would buy the second one would be like only like 20% or something like that which is mind-boggling to me. But still, I don't, that beginning rubbed me the wrong way. Oh, that is a crazy number, but I, I, they, they probably know a lot more about sure. sales figures and, and the, that sort of thing than I do. So maybe I can buy it. But I, I still feel like, specifically with a game that advertises itself not even as two, but part two of a whole, this is, this is a continue, direct continuation. I feel like the onus for understanding those things is actually on the consumer. and that there's something degrading to the work itself about having kind of this really utilitarian opening like that. You know, if you come to a part two, having not seen part one, that's cool. Maybe you're fine experiencing it without the added context and you get a unique experience that way. Maybe you do care and you read up on it or watch a recap video and you come in that way. But I I feel like coming into it, expecting the game to tell you everything that happened like that is is kind of a weird expectation. I just think it's weird because it's a game that takes so many risks and and is not afraid of doing that. So this just seems like a really dumb don't setter for the game. And I've seen this a bit throughout where it kind of wants to make sure a lot more than the first one that people really understand what they're going for. Understatement is not this game's speciality. And it's not trying to be understated either. It's repeatedly hammering home certain things over and over again. And, and I think that, at least as far as my taste goes, that's a bit of a, a weakness. Uh, and it's interesting, I think one of the things we had discussed prior to the podcast was that the some of the directions and the performances are a bit on the more subtle side. You know, you can really see 
a lot conveyed with very little in certain spots, but the writing is just repeatedly heavy-handed <laughs> at points. Um, it's so bizarre to me because it's such a different approach to writing from the first one. They seem to have traded the tight simplicity, a simplicity that hid quite a bit of depth and nuance uh, for something that strives to be and wants to be more nuanced, but ends up simply being overstated by the script itself. The subtext becomes text. Exactly. But I think that carries over kind of to the next conversation in the game, which is Joel with Ellie in her room, uh, where he, he shows up to, to sing her a nice song. Uh, and if I've ever heard a song that... Oh my God. <laughs> more directly just laid out the, the, a theme of the Speaking game. Speaking of on the nose. Yeah. Man, I can't recall it. Oh this, boy. This, this song... <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably lose myself. Everything I've found here, I've not found by myself. And it, it kind of, this works a little bit better to me than the Tommy moment because there is kind of an awareness. This is kind of a, a dad thing, like a pathetic dad <laughs> showering a lot of emotion. I, mean, I like the moment, but come on. Yeah. I definitely laughed uh, the first time I <laughs> heard this song. I did. Ellie didn't laugh. She did better than me. I rolled my eyes so hard. Where are you going with this naughty dog? After after these first two conversations, I'm kind of worried that we're just going to drown in sentiment. But it gets better from here. No, absolutely. Uh, I don't. I don't. Were there? there, Did you have any other thoughts you want to touch on in these these very first non-player controlled sequences? It did not start well. I mean, I was happy to be back. As a fan that also didn't think this needed a sequel by any means, it was a bit jarring, the tone that was being set with the really crass recap and the super on the nose song choice. I mean, I like the the sort of tension between them in that scene. Right. You can tell something about the relationship has changed. I've always found uh, the doubting and focus on the ambiguity regarding Ellie's knowledge of Joel's lie from people rather strange. As in, Ellie knew he was lying or not. I mean, obviously she knew he was lying, you know. Um, Why else would she tell the story recounting everyone who died? underlying the need of all of it to have meaning and making him promise that what he's saying is true. Exactly. She's offering him a chance. It's not about, I need to know what happened so much as I'm giving you a chance to do the right thing here and seeing if you'll take that chance. And in that moment, everything they've built throughout that one year of their journey is somehow undone. Which is very interesting, you know. I mean, the game doesn't 100% say that, but I, I think there's enough in the performance. And as you mentioned, her telling that anecdote that it is reasonable to assume that she has severe doubts, if not outright knows that he's lying one degree or another. And I've always found more interesting regarding that ending, not the question of Ellie thinking Joel is lying or not, as much as why does Joel lie? I mean, there's a taciturn understanding between players and Joel, that it would be bad for him to tell her what he did. Because by knowing Ellie (laughs) throughout that first game, we would know what her choice would have been. I mean, obviously he is worried about the weight it would put on her and the damage. I mean, selfishly, he is very concerned about the damage it would do to their relationship. Because I, I think a lot of the first game is Joel transferring Sarah, his daughter, 
uh, sort of onto Ellie throughout the game. Like originally he doesn't open up at all. And then as he opens up, he, he more and more begins to, to basically conflate the two. And you see this in how he treats Ellie as he would have treated Sarah at moments. And he's not, he sees her not just as a daughter figure, but as specifically Sarah and Sarah's characteristics as well, not Ellie's characteristics. He doesn't, you know, always recognize her capability, but sees her as that, you know, girl that gets shot at the beginning of the game. And I mean, and the game directly calls back to this, even in the finale as he's walking out of the hospital and, you know, repeatedly uttering the phrase baby girl. And I, I think that's an important distinction to make because I think everybody sort of picks up on him gradually adopting her as a daughter figure, but it is possible for her to be both yeah, yeah. daughter figure and Ellie and not specifically daughter figure and Sarah. And the key thing is that he actually just replace like views her as Sarah, that, that, that transformation happens, at least in my point of view. I don't, Obviously, there may be some disagreements there, but that is sort of the big takeaway there. When I say Ellie knows Joel is lying, I don't mean it as a sort of certainty. But there is this very, very deep-rooted doubt. And you can see it very well in that uh, in the tension of that interaction. And that's the whole point of that scene, besides the incredibly on-the-nose song. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice part of that scene, the... You know, the, the subtext that isn't made text that we just get through their performances. And specifically Ellie's, uh, Ashley Johnson's performance in that scene. The reserve with which she now speaks to Joel. We can see there's some guardedness there that wasn't necessarily there if you drop back into uh, the end game of the previous game. Uh, but they they catch up, and then I think we have a, a bit of a time jump. Yeah. The scene ends on a good note. The tension is kind of relieved as the Jules singing mm-hmm. and Ellie agrees to take uh, guitar lessons with him and they make a joke. So kind of like the moods are up uh, a bit, which right. is very important because I think the whole setup of this game is based on this idea of not really knowing the relationship between the two of them, between that scene and the four years later waking up in bed moment which is very, very pivotal. It's after a night that we just keep hearing things about. Yeah, the game structure, not just in terms of these large time skips, but in terms of the events that are sort of taking place in the current day as we're going through it, is very windy and twisty in it. And it doubles back on itself, then it goes back and it says, all right, now you'll see this one scene that we've selectively left out. And now we'll revisit part of it here, or we'll do we'll move here. It it jumps all over the place throughout, and uh, I'll have some more thoughts on that later because as I was going through the game, I was constantly wondering like, in the end, is this going to feel more contrived or necessary for the story? And I, I think there's a little bit of both in my final analysis. But yes, there's a there's been a major event that is constantly referred to throughout uh, our next day in the game uh, here four years later that we didn't actually see. And we sort of get a bunch of secondhand accounts of it. To Ellie, um, she's going out on patrol with a new character, Jesse, the first new character, I think, of the game. And, and this scene is, uh, you know, this whole walk through Jackson is a nice, as you say, uh, positive atmosphere. Maybe the <laughs> the last positive atmosphere that the game might have, even though there's some dour notes to it. We We get a sense of the community that Ellie and Joel have managed to place themselves into in Jackson, Wyoming. 
that they've sort of found a, a happy status quo, or at least maybe as happy a status quo as someone can find in the in this world. And they're just going about their day-to-day business. I mean, it's strange because we've never really had a happy, mundane moment in the first one. We've never really seen them not in danger. They've always been on the cusp of peril. Right. So it is a strange feeling, but at the same time, very, very familiar because the beginning is very predictable expectations-wise. Obviously, uh, we're going to advance and they'll have the first twist that kind of ruffled a few feathers. <laughs> but the beginning is so predictable in meeting expectation that is no wonder so many mostly angry fans said the game was great the first couple of hours. Because it is luring you and setting you in that feeling of everything is good, you're back in this world, everything is as you would imagine it to be. So I think it's very smart. I get to pet a dog. Yeah. It's really nice. There is a dog in Waterdam part when they first meet uh, Tommy in the first game. There's a dog there. <laughs> I do wonder if this, if it's the same <laughs> dog or if it's a different one. It's the same dog. But, but the dog's actually hanging out with uh, Gustavo yeah, 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 in yeah. town. <laughs> the, the in-game representation of the, the game's composer. Uh, he has a nice dog with him. But I think there's another very interesting thing about this part, outside of this sense of security it gives you, which I think is important to sort of justify certain actions and elements a bit later. Um, and that is the reference or mention that there has been some sort of scuffle between Ellie and Joel. But you aren't at any point given the indication that they've been estranged by any means whatsoever. Right. The weight of it, specifically, is not is not really uh, laid out. Yeah. We just know that they had a little bit of a fight the night before. But we assume they're the same good old Ellie and Joel we knew from the first game. Exactly. Sure. One of the things I really like about this chapter past this first few scenes is that it's a place where the narrative, I think, naturally serves the needs of the game pretty well mm. uh, in that this is your tutorial sequence. Yeah. You're going to want a slow ramping up of action and a chance to present the player with a variety of actions so they can see all the capabilities at their disposal, reacclimate to the controls, uh, sort of move in in a slowly accelerating fashion. And the story also wants to be slowly accelerating from this point of relative comfort into an extremely tense scenario. You want this climbing tension throughout. So what we get is a sequence where both the gameplay and the narrative have the same needs and they, they pair very well together. We also get accustomed with the few side characters that play a huge role throughout Ellie's journey. Quote-unquote side characters. <laughs> yeah. So we have Dina and Jesse. Oh, yeah. Those characters. Those are side characters. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were talking about another one. <laughs> no. Uh, these two and Ellie, they form a sort of love triangle. And we'll see this is not the only um, love triangle we're going to deal with. We're coming into existing relationships that we have not that have taken place since we last left these characters that we have not got to see get formed. So we're sort of having to to piece together the histories that are here. And I love that. I love that because it makes this place, like this place and characters lived. They have history. They have, they existed before we started playing. The player is not the center of the world. Exactly. They have to go on patrol. And we know Joel and Tommy have gone on patrol as well earlier because they ha- there have been sites of infected and it's uh, apparently ramping up even. yeah so you got characters leaving a very safe situation you've got rumors of increasing threats on the outskirts beyond the, the safety of this town and as we move into this section you're also going to see uh, the weather take a turn for the worse so everything about our scenario 
is taking this otherwise mostly like probably the safest situation we've ever been in in this series and just slowly ramping up the tension. After they leave Jackson, the first interesting thing happens in this game. You're presented with a cutscene. At first, I thought it was the same Jackson people sleeping on watch or whatever, taking turns. Maybe maybe a patrol or something, another patrol like Tommy and Joel or something. And then we see this person waking up, this new character. We're not sure who she is. We later find out her name is Abby. And she wakes up, she talks to this other character called Owen, and they go on a stroll. And weirdly enough, you realize you're controlling her. Yep, the first time we've controlled someone other than a pair. This sequence, right away, there's some key differences. The color palette we were working with in Jackson proper is very warm. Uh, you've got a lot of brown woods. You've got the uh, the Christmas lights basically set up everywhere. Uh, and then there's the camaraderie of all these people about. And otherwise, you know, a very peaceful gathering as far as what we've seen in this series. And then we move to Abby and Owen, and they're kind of restrained. Uh, Abby even comments on Owen being uh, maybe a bit weirdly restrained. She's not used to this kind of behavior from him. The color palette is much cooler. Yeah, They are up higher in the mountains. There's a lot of snow. There's no lights thereabouts. Um, so this is sort of a departure from the warmth of Jackson in many ways. This section is kind of, kind of cool because we don't know these people, and their aims aren't also made very clear to us. They clearly have a goal, uh, yeah. and they're discussing around the edges of it, but they know what it is. There's no need for them to restate it in their conversations to one another. So we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what are these people doing here? Uh, the environment looks like it could be Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Are they near our characters? Do their goals have anything to do with the people we know? Gameplay-wise, what this does is they're already out there in the wilderness near infected so this lets the game you know move from the snowball fight a non-lethal encounter to actual danger in its tutorial mode uh, and then abby is actually how we first get our, our training at least in this game for stealth encounters so it it uses her narrative context to introduce that to us because she's already out in the wilderness naughty dog has done one-off experiments with uh, characters you don't necessarily expect to play i mean even in the first last of us we kind of get that season with ellie the sort of a, a change up curveball and here we're getting this in the uh the opening so i didn't i didn't want to read too much into it there's no indication at least right away how meaningful this is but it it does and I, this is kind of getting into a larger point that I think it's going to come up throughout this discussion. Uh, it does put the player in the shoes of Abby, which depending on who you are may get you to unwittingly feel some level of sympathy for her or you know, see things from her perspective. I generally try to approach things from a distance, and this is what I mean. It'll come up a few times. So it's not really that meaningful to me, but for those for people who are like that or... Or maybe if you came off the first game and you had these strong attachments with Joel and Ellie just because you played with them, maybe this is doing something similar for you here. I'd actually argue that playing her at that stage of the game is less to empathize with her and more the opposite, to actually despise her for what she'll do later. It's adding to that feeling of betrayal. You feel like you've 
you've sort of you've inadvertently helped her yeah. get to achieving her aims when we get to what those aims are later. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but maybe that is also a way the player could react here. It was an interesting turn, but I was trying not to read too much into it at once. I guess I should also give uh, a little bit of background here, since the leaks for this game were such a noted, yeah, uh, you know, high, high there, there were a lot of them, and they came out significantly earlier, and it feels like you know there were a lot more attention paid to this game's leaks than the average game. Um, I had basically avoided not just the leaks, but also the ad campaign for this game. Wow. I think I had seen a very early presentation from the game where Ellie is strumming a guitar and looking angry, and that is literally (laughs) pretty much all I'd seen of the game. No, it's funny, because I I think that one, the one you saw, thinking back on it, is probably the most spoiler-heavy one, even though it doesn't show anything from the game itself, is the one that, that makes the most... Um, of the allegory of her being on a revenge mission and Joel is a ghost. Yeah, there's a very (laughs) strong implication to that scene that what is the reason she wants revenge is a question you have, even if that's the only thing you've seen. Now, in my case, and we'll get to ultimately why she wants her revenge, in my case, I'd heard enough things around the edges where I hadn't seen any of the leaks or the marketing material, but I I was aware that people strongly disliked this game. And right. people from all walks of life strongly dislike this game. You had people on the far right politically upset over, uh, I guess, some of the choices made for representation in the game. And then you had people on the left yeah. uh, also very upset at how, uh, I guess, some of these characters were treated. So mentally, I had some inferences from this, and I actually expected Dina to die. Mm. Uh, but I mean, that's pretty much how they set up their entire ad campaign was revenge for Dina. Oh, interesting. So they, they were actually... They also emphasized a lot the sort of pre-order bonus or spe- collector's edition bonus where it was... Uh... <laughs> it feels so weird in the context of <laughs> all this heavy narrative material. You know, it's like Dina's bracelet was very pervade. Like, it was everywhere. Oh, okay. So yeah. so it was sort of implied that, oh, all right, I see what's going to happen. It's... So maybe a bit of misdirection on their part to, to try and steer oh, people away from the Oh, there has been so much misdirection. But we're going to get uh-huh. to that uh, towards the end yeah. of this because that's more into like marketing and ending and reception and stuff like that. So despite despite avoiding a lot of the marketing material, it still sounds like I arrived at the same place that a lot of people that watched it did. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> maybe a bit disappointing. Uh-huh. So we play as Abby. Her and Owen talk about finding him. Some him is being mentioned. Their sort of goal is around this one guy. Now, us being, you know, our main characters being Ellie and Joel, we can, at least I assume, oh, it's Joel. (laughs) I don't think I was like, maybe he's just some strange guy from Jackson. I don't know. My thought was, was Joel as well, but then I was hoping, you know, it wouldn't be quite that neat. I know one prominent male character... I'm wondering if it's going to be that prominent male character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, it's also clear from how they're sort of how they're talking about this and how they're talking about maybe finding a patrol to give up information on him that their aims for this person are probably not nice. Right. And I think this is the first weird turn where Abby says, well, we're going to like corner a patrol and get information from them. And Owen says, well, I don't think they're going to just give that information up just willy-nilly. 
And she said, well, we're going to make them. And Owen says, wait, do you hear yourself? Which is weird because our whole dynamic so far from the first game is like you get the information that way. Like you make them. Right. This is a this is a harsh world. Any delusions of being a moral, righteous person are largely gone from the characters that we uh, exist around. Right. But it put this group in a particularly interesting light uh, compared to pretty much any other faction we've been accustomed to up to that point. Basically, they aren't heinously evil, go to any lengths type of characters. They uh, seem to have some sort of boundaries. Right. We're going to find that this group has, you know, they have a code. And also that they, I mean, they aren't they aren't two-dimensional villains. Yeah. Uh, and I don't even really think they're that different from most of the other characters we're exposed to in this world, period. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. So that whole scene ends with uh, Abby and Owen having a fight based in small parts on um, on this very premise of not being willing to achieve their goal at any cost. I think Owen actually says those words, uh, which leads to Abby trying to find info on her own, transitioning in the infected tutorial you mentioned earlier, and um, ending on her finding two sets of horse tracks. And my read on that was, um, oh... Those are alien dinas. Yeah. Again, we know two characters on horses. Yeah, exactly. Out in the snow. <laughs> are these the two characters on horses out in the snow? We know. Uh, very easy logical leaps happening here. Yeah, because uh, you, you don't give much benefit of the doubt structurally to games, even right. games like Last of Us. You know, manage to do some interesting things with a lot of overdone themes and context. There's, there's some. We've, we've talked about some good points where it doesn't make the player the center of the world, where we see all the relevant yeah. things and only the relevant things. But here, that's exactly what's happening. Although I, I suppose that the two horse tracks could also be Tommy and Joel. No, I we mean, know where they're at, but we know they're out on patrol as well. I assume that's what they are. Like, I assume this Tommy and Joel's. But like, my first initial thought was like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's the idea of seeing a piece of media and already constructing the story in your head. Mm-hmm. And you're like... I know what's going to happen. She's going to find Ellie and Dina, and she'll realize something about Jackson. Like, there's going to be friends or not friends. It's going to be interesting and curious. and what. Like, I did not expect what would actually happen. Well, everything about this sequence, from the, the color palette to the, the unease between Owen and Abby, and what little we can glean about their aims, as well as the fact that we're first exposed to infected here, everything here is just ratcheting up that tension which is the strongest feature of this entire opening segment. We go back to Ellie and, and Dina, and uh, they are moving out of the warmth of Jackson, more into the snowy environs we have just witnessed. And they are are going to slowly be exposed to this tension as well. Um, and this sort of... I would say that Abby's portion of the game up to this point was very similar to what people uh, rightly or wrongly call out The Last of Us 1 as being, which is a largely linear corridor where you have, you know, a laid out encounter that you can maybe glance at the environment, the encounter space and have a pretty good idea of how you're supposed to approach it. And then we get over to Ellie and Dina and we get something that's a little bit more indicative of how this game's going to play out where you have kind of the wide linear approach where you get a whole street, the next objective is at the end of it, but you can sort of move off to the side and scavenge and run into little vignettes and maybe an enemy or two on the side. Yeah. Uh, as you go down it, and this is this is largely the structure the game will follow for good chunks of it. I'd say the majority of the game, even. And then we get some, you know, some personal backstory between Dina and Ellie. 
Ellie is behaving with, uh, you know, a little bit of guard up here. She clearly likes Dina, especially if you read her journal. Uh, <laughs> she's ho- holding back a lot, but she doesn't want to read too much into a kiss they had the night before. Is anything more than just goofing off? There's a lot of teasing going on. Yeah, so she's just sort of guard up around Dina the whole time, trying to feel out Dina's intent. For their perspective, while there's you know a lot of zombies about, you get the sense that this is just their their routine how their lives go. That's actually emphasized and with good reason by objects like the ledger they have to sign on their patrol. Exactly. There's a, you know, this is something that happens all the time. Like, they're partners that go out here and, in fact, Ellie and Dina's names I think are in the books with, with other partners before. This is just... And even though there is a sort of underlying growing tension, I do think this entire thing still is a very tricky way of the developers to set you up in this sort of predictable, safe feeling, just so they can later on manage to really pull the rug from under your feet. But um, I I still think it's very deliberate, the way this is paced. And it's a very sort of long intro. Yeah, it is. I think the first time I played through it, I want to say it took me five hours to get to the the notable endpoint for the sequence which is a really long intro. I don't think it's I don't think that's the intended length. I think I spent way too much time picking around and reading things. And on my new game plus playthrough, I did not take anywhere near that long, but yeah, it's a beefy intro, especially for this style game. To be honest, the title of the first game came after Sarah's death. That's like what 30 minutes is that into the game <laughs> the title for the second one came after the guitar but the real title should have been after this certain point it's like what two three hours in the game yeah yeah we'll say right before seattle day one right after jackson maybe yeah exactly uh, it's a long slow paced it's the le- length of a film yeah yeah uh, it ratchets up briefly for Abby, and then it goes back down, although not down to Jackson levels as we go back to Ellie and Dina. Uh, they get a nice little encounter in a supermarket. Yeah. You get in- introduced to Clickers, uh, and then after you get Clickers solo, the game also does mixed Clicker runner encounters, which is where the, the danger of the Clicker actually really shows up, alone they aren't that bad. This is a nice little space. It's, just, it's compact, but You've got room to sort of come up with one of those classic stealth lines like in the previous game or Splinter Cell or Metal Gear or whatever. They do introduce the robe here, but just like very, very mildly. Yeah. So since The Last of Us 1, we've had Uncharted 4 come out. And Uncharted 4 has the, I guess, grappling the grappling hook, hook as yeah. well as the, the free-hanging ropes occasionally. And this game folds that development they made there back into it. And it's mostly used in sort of your slow down pacing segments, maybe a puzzle solving here or there. Just another way of traversing the world other than pushing boxes and things around to climb over. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a lot of thoughts on it. It's fine to have another sort of activity for this. But these, I will say in general, I found Uncharted downtime segments to be a little less necessary, I guess. The platforming in that game is fairly autopiloty. There's not a sense of a lot of timing mattering or precision mattering. Sure. Uh, things are pretty much laid out where you need to go. So their function becomes one of pacing, and I didn't feel the need for it as much in those. But in The Last of Us, which also has similar, if not you know, more regularly scheduled downtime segments, I find the downtime to be more engaging and more necessary. I think they leverage it as learning opportunities for the world building better. I think that 
placing it amidst these sort of very tense on edge encounters uh, where you're spending long portions in stealth waiting for the right opportunity. I think breaking up those feels a lot more valuable to me than breaking up the third person shooting encounters in Uncharted. So despite the games have sharing some DNA here, this is one of the areas where you you know you have a similarity, but I feel very differently about it in this context than I do Uncharted. It serves this type of story or experience better. Yeah, than the Indiana Jones blockbuster, I guess. Yeah. There are two notable things that happen here story-wise or character development-wise, I think. One of them is that Ellie is wearing a mask, which just yeah. signifies that. I mean, we know she doesn't need to. And but we, now, now we know she feels the need to, to disguise herself. Yeah, to hide this thing. And the second one is very closely related to this, is that she gets to a point, well, they have a sort of intimate moment, uh, her and Dina. And yes, I've heard it described as the best use of marijuana in games. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. I don't really know what to compare well, I'm, I'm to. struggling to put up counter counter nominations, yeah. So, I sure, mean, I remember using a flamethrower in San Andreas, and like that seemed pretty cool. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting... Again, it's a fun, very nice, safe scene. Yes. Beautiful, intimate. A bit of humor in there as well. With the whole Eugene Weed, yeah. Sex Den, all those things. It feels oh, very right. normal. Eugene is this whole character we, we get introduced to that we, we never get to meet, but we certainly find out right. a bit about it. That's kind of fun. Yeah. But, uh, you just have this character that exists solely in recollection. Yeah. yeah. And after that intimate moment, Ellie tells Dina about her bite mark and is taken as a joke. Pretty much. Yep, but it's good that she uh, plants the seed here. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it will become very relevant later, and I, I wonder if Ellie might not have been shot in the face later had she not at least put this story out there. Now, right between this moment, this probably post-quittal confession and the prior dazed, intimate, passionate moment between Ellie and Dina, we get back to playing as Abby. And here is the first interesting gameplay twist I found in the game, where you find yourself back in this sort of snowy scenario again, and there are some infected around. The blizzard has really picked up. Yeah, and I approach this as a stealth person, as I've been used to playing The Last of Us. I approach like, okay, let me try to break them apart. Let me try to take them one. One at a time, yeah. Exactly. Soon I realize I'm overwhelmed, and I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. Did I trigger so many because of the difficulty? Did I ruin my stealth? Did I do something wrong? And I start running, and it wasn't something I was used to from the first game, the idea of this sort of zombie mob device. I haven't seen that before in the first game. Uh, Maybe very brief moments in places like Bill's Town, but never like this this magnitude. So it was very unexpected for me. Yeah, it's it's interesting because... I think it may have been a thing inherited from Uncharted more than the first one. The the moment I saw, I think the first big group spill over the edge and you hear them screaming or whatever, my brain there was like a toggle, and I was like, oh, this is not a fight. Yeah, this is not a stealth sequence. This is a run. Mm. And I just immediately switched. It was very artificial. It's not something that the game necessarily deserves any kind of blame for, but it was just like the the language of the game has trained me to understand groups of enemies below a certain threshold as something you will fight. And groups of enemies above that number, I'm like, oh, okay, we 
we've now exceeded what could clearly be expected as a combat encounter. But I agree that this is kind of rare for the game, and I do think it was the brain moving into Uncharted mode. I was taken completely by surprise. I almost died the first time there because I just didn't know what I was doing wrong. Right, you were actually engaging it as an encounter. For me, it was just what I did before with Abby. It was just a continuation of that. Right. I hadn't snapped a neck yet. I hadn't actually gotten into combat. I was just sort of creeping through the environment. I think there's a turn you can take off the road to the right where you bypass some zombies. And like I was starting to creep up on one, and then I saw them pull over, and then I saw the opening, and I was like, oh. Yeah. And then, and then it just triggered. I think part of it was because I just directly went encounter mode, seeing the first runner just standing there inviting my stealth attack. And it's very deceptive how the first enemies are placed. So I kind of strangled one and then that sort of triggered another one to see me and I was, no, and trying to silence quickly the ones that saw me. Yeah. And then I realized, oh man, there are a lot more than I thought there would be here. No, no you're totally right. It, it, it presents the, when you walk into that environment, it looks like a stealth encounter like you've just come out of. And it just went up to 11. And then it became this extremely nice looking and directed, tense, fast-paced action set piece, yeah. basically. Yep. I think you had more of the intended experience. And this culminates with us, Abby, meeting up with some uh, good old characters from the first game. Yep, just off screen. Yeah. Uh, their introduction is a, a gun to the head. <laughs> Of a poor infected. <laughs> yeah, very important to say that gun was uh, to the head of an infected that uh, also had the upper hand on us. So Joel saves us, Abby, which is a very important element, I think, for the narrative. Yeah, I think it contributes to some of the indignation people end up feeling here. Is that She sort of has a debt to him. And because of that debt and the way the following encounter is set up, running away and fighting infected with Joel and Tommy, made me think, well, whatever grievances she might have with him, they seem to be fine now. They seem to have to work together in this very tough moment. Right, the the common enemy in danger here. Take like Nobody is worried about the goals in life. The goal right now is just, we all need to get out of here. I mean, again, we don't know who she's after. And we also don't know if, if she's after Joel, does she even know Joel's face? Or does she just know his name? Like, Tommy, I think, introduces them mid-fight, I want to say. And there there is a moment where she has a look, and this is the first time you think, oh, okay, they are on a collision course. This name is meaningful to her. Yeah. Whether what she wants to do to this name, to the person bearing it, still not clear, but she definitely has that moment where, again, I think that's something we might overlook praising throughout, but the performances and the mocap and the animation touch-ups afterwards, very easy to read some some wonderful subtle details going on. Uh, where Absolutely. You get that bit of information without Abby saying a word. There's a little bit of a snap, a shaken glance. And you know, as a player, you know that she registered that name. But you still think, okay, look, this is all going to be all right. Because what isn't all right in a post-apocalyptic bleak game? <laughs> Clearly things will go positively for our characters (laughs) so already there's a weird feeling about what's going on but because of the safety net that has been placed all throughout this prologue and i think they've done such a wonderful job i'll i'll go into this later on regarding the huge lengths they've gone to make uh, her as despisable as possible at this point in game there's still this very interesting duality where we feel like well 
Something's weird and tense, but also things are kind of nice. Joel saved us. Ellie's deepening her relationship with Dina. We're all fine. There's almost a safety to immediate danger, as weird as that sounds. Yeah, yeah. In that the machinations and dread tend to come from human characters in these games and not the zombies. Zombies are unambiguous. We know they mean you harm. And they're also fairly straightforward to deal with. So as long as we are caught up in the threat of dealing with zombies in fight or flight mode, the subtler dread, the dread that's actually pervasive and gets under your skin, can sort of be put on the back burner. So I think in, in a weird way, being in in this immediate danger in this fight against the zombies in the, I think it's a gondola room, is less tense and less scary than just sort of being left to ponder Abby's intentions. Absolutely. And that also hides a little bit the worry at the end of this segment when Joel, Tommy, and Abby decide to retreat from the zombie horde wherever Abby's group is at. And we jump back to Ellie and Dina in that sort of intimate confession time moment. And they're found by Jesse. The intervals are getting more rapid now. We started with a, a very lengthy section with yeah. Ellie and Dina, and then we got a kind of a lengthy section with Abby, and we got a shorter section with Ellie and Dina, shorter section with Abby. There's like a, a percussive rhythm to it. And then I think this is pivotal because uh, Jesse comes and it kind of, it's humorous a bit. Oh, the, he found them and they were in that <laughs> awkward, intimate situation. You couldn't wait at least a few more weeks after the breakup? Come on, Ellie, she was attacked. This being his ex. And then the tone shifts all of a sudden. Uh, when Jesse says he's there because Joel and Tommy are nowhere to be found. And we know where Joel and Tommy are. They're with Abby. They didn't show up where they were supposed to show up because of all the infected. However, the tone the game is setting right now, even with its uh, music and audio, is not a nice one. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I think the timing here is almost weirdly, I don't know, disarming. Because we know where Tommy and Joel are at the point that we get this information, it's less threatening than it would have been had we, yeah. say, gotten this revelation prior to the scene where, you know, they walk in on Abby. But we know that they are, you know, they're not safe, but they're also not dead, you know, or worse, infected. For me, it was interesting because this was the moment that gave me the bad feelings where I, I knew they were safe, but I now started wondering how safe they really are. I guess there could be some question of like, are these timelines fully synced up? Yeah. Or is Jesse potentially coming to Abby and Ellie well after whatever the situation that's going down with Joel and Tommy has transpired? So I could see reading it that way. And then we jump to a very important cutscene. Yeah. Maybe the catalyst for the entire game to come. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although I guess you could also make the argument that the ending of the first game is that cutscene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're very deeply linked. <laughs> yeah. Abby offers sanctuary to Joel and Tommy. The group that she has come out here with that we saw sleeping in her first cutscene is nearby. And they have a somewhat secured location. And I think any misgivings about... You know, whether Joel and Tommy would be suspicious about, you know, going to see an outsider group and take up their assistance in this, whether they might mistrust them. You know, all of that falls by the wayside because of the immediate danger they're in. There isn't really much choice. They can attempt a apparently suicidally dangerous ride back to Jackson in the blizzard and the horde, where they can make the much smaller leap and hope that the person whose life they just saved will not, you know, betray them in any way. Yeah, I want to come back to this one. Yeah. Uh, but but let's go on with the with what happens in this cutscene. Okay. Well, they, they ride over. Owen and the rest of the group is now awake. Look, they almost look like they're waiting for Abby. They have the gate open. 
I'm not sure how. That, yeah, that, that that was a little bit weird. But <laughs> if there's a blizzard and a zombie horde, I feel like. <laughs> but whatever. Abby uses her short range radio to call in their arrival in advance. <laughs> no. uh, they they ride in. The gate gets sealed behind them. Yeah. All is well, or is it? Tommy and Joel walk into the room. Uh, there is a brief moment here where they're talking to some member of the group. I, I forget. They turn down some offer of aid and just you know, want to be on their way with their horses after they manage to to wait out the blizzard. There's some indication that they kind of don't want to be here any longer than they have to, but they walk in the room. Tommy introduces them to the whole group, Abby, Jordan, Leah, Manny, Mel, Nora, Owen, and Nick. We only know two of these people right now. And there's an electricity that sort of goes through the room. As we we see the reaction we saw on Abby's face earlier sort of spread around the entire room. Joel and Tommy pick up on it immediately yeah, and attempt to disarm the situation, but there's there's no disarming this. And uh, Abby pulls out a shotgun, blows Joel's leg off, basically. Yeah. And we are, and this informs us immediately (laughs) as to, to their intentions. I was waiting for a nice comedic moment that would have been totally out of place where she blows his leg off after he introduces himself as Joel. And then she says, uh, rather accusatorily, Joel Miller. I really hoped he would be like Joel Rosenthal or something completely unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oops, like, oh, uh, I guess I took the it. wrong guy's leg off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but no, we don't get that. It's it's for real. It actually did make me wonder that. I don't recall Joel's last name ever being mentioned in the first games. When she said Miller, I was like, who is that? There's no <laughs> yeah, Joel. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually know who this is. <laughs> so they shoot Joel and then they smash Tommy's head and he kind of falls unconscious. We don't really know if Tommy is alive or dead by <laughs> at that point. And we don't really understand the level of the situation until we get a glimpse of Joel's leg. That was the first time when I was like, oh, well, okay. Things are bad. Yeah, it's a video game. People get shot. Yeah. Shots are usually healed by making a bar go back up. But this is a shot in a cinematic, which is very different. This leg is gone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is so sinister because for me, in the cutscene, Abby, after they blow off his leg, they have a, a little discussion. And she tells Mel, who's a doctor, to tourniquet his leg. Yeah, and then Owen has the... I mean, Owen's a very interesting character to watch during all of this. Oh, yeah. Because he immediately shoots her a loaded glance. Like, what we're going to come to find throughout the game is Owen does care for Abby and her goals, but uh, he also challenges her. I think this is a game that really, really benefits from a replay, knowing everything. There's so much detail in here. Knowing who to look at. Yeah. At what moments, yeah. For me, the first time in that moment when she said tourniquet his leg, I was like, oh, okay. So, I mean, Joel's going to be, like, without one leg. <laughs> Just a flesh wound. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things could have gone worse. So, it's like, there's going to be some... No, they're getting worse. It's even worse. <laughs> I did not... That's the cynical side of it. Tourniquet his leg was a positive for me. Right. Not understand that's very much a negative. <laughs> <laughs> the intent is not positive. But I absolutely love love that line when abby gets a golf club and says you stupid old man you don't get to rush this and abby has yeah. some some really poignant lines in this game and i find that that's one one of them that's that's a really interesting one on on revisiting mm. because i feel like more than anything else that happens in this scene more than even killing joel this is the part that really you know really uh I don't know. 
that I, I have a hard time reconciling even now. It sets up expectations that whatever Joel did to offend her, and at this point in the game, even not knowing why they're there, we know Joel's history. We know that he's pissed off a lot yeah. of people, killed a lot of people, done a lot to survive. It's not at all unthinkable that he could piss somebody off to the point of them wanting to do this to him. But there's a sadism in this scene that absolutely that makes you wonder, man, what the hell did they? Because my initial thought was much like you know the tracks in the snow. Uh, there's two pairs of tracks, or the one male character. Well, we know we know one violent act that Joel has done. Maybe they're here about that one violent act. But then she pulls out the golf club, and I'm like, well, damn, Joel. Joel did a heinous thing, but he did it, you know, for the survival of a person. He did not indulge in it. He simply killed as necessary to get her out of there. This feels like well, a level of torment. Right. There, there must have been something absolutely heinous and gross about what he did. The thing that I love about, I mean, I, I don't love them doing this. I Right. You, you love from a storytelling perspective. You yes. Love Which is very right. interesting because this has also been the point of contention. For, for like, yeah. This has been the big one for a lot of people. <laughs> Which is really interesting to me. We can, we can go into this later. But not knowing what people were up in arms about. I don't understand it because this is the most logical thing that could... Again, we'll get into this later. But I am really, really impressed how basically everything the developers and writers have done so far into this game is towards this moment. Unknowingly, they have offered every kind of possible trick to emphasize this exact moment being unredeemable. Like, there's no possible redeemable way. There's no justification. There's nothing whatsoever that could justify this. And this is a very interesting point that you're seeing as well, because when she took that golf club and, you know, said that line, you're like, whoa, okay, so Joel did some really horrible, horrible stuff. He took joy in something wrong. He took joy in something perverse, was specifically my thought. This is, it, it, it can't be just like a, he killed someone. Right. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm trying to balance the scales or something here. And, exactly. And my thoughts are this level of sadism would only be done in exchange for an equivalent level of sadism. And the Joel we've seen in the first game is not a sadist. He's immoral and a survivor, but sadism isn't really his thing. <laughs> This game deals a lot with perspective, obviously, as we'll find out. But the first game is very much from the perspective of Joel. And us as players relating to Joel, it is so easy to forgive Joel's actions. I've seen so many playthroughs. And also, I don't know like if gamers are just generally sociopathic or <laughs> a tendency maybe, um, maybe. <laughs> within just a general... Oh, boy. Populous. That's good. But, yeah, I mean, it's so weird. I've seen moments where, like, Joel is doing something awful, or Ellie in the second game is doing something awful, trying to imitate Joel. And people were like, yeah, smiling, like, yes, I remember that. Like, Joel did that. It's sort of like a badge of honor kind of thing. No, man, that was horrible. That was a horrible, horrible thing. And the whole point of this game is to show you how much of a horrible thing this is. I think people got lost in the proposition of empathizing later on with this character as much as they missed the idea of showcasing how much of a villain Joel was. I definitely saw some reactions well after the fact because I tried not to read anything until I was completely done. Yeah. Where people seemingly at this moment resolve to not ever be open to Abby. Basically 
literally in words I've, I've seen that spelled out that you know i know the game might go down some path where it tries to illustrate or justify this but no matter what happens i will never let that get to me i will never open myself up but i think that's the brilliance of this game and narrative i mean i understand not liking it it's difficult to like <laughs> i think that's the kind of the point of it but i kept reading things like lazy writing or plot holes or whatever but everything is so planned into making this the vilest possible act that you could possibly feel it's extremely risky and it's applaudable that they went this way i mean for me i had what i gather is not the normal reaction here it kind of gets back to how i i like to approach media and storytelling which is i mean i didn't feel any anger i felt nothing i didn't feel negatively because i, I try to preserve some level of distance and to me this was just like the sadist side of it irked me and made me wonder what really happened. But beyond that, I didn't really feel anything especially negative. My assumption was that Joel had, in fact, fucked these people over in some rather heinous way. Which is probably fair to say after the fact that that is what happened. You know, even when I finish the first game, when I play a game, I am not the person I'm playing. Of course. Uh, I'm trying to be... I, th I think people have a very difficult time understanding that. Yeah, I'm. I'm only ever observing from the outside when i read a book the same way or when i you know watch a movie i'm trying to remove myself from it as much as possible constantly and i understand that's not what people want to do always even and and some in some works you're even intended to bring yourself to bear inside it in some manner um, but i've always had an easier time being distant there's a sort of irony to the meta discourse around this game given what it tries to do as <laughs> it's apparently telling a very obvious point people have said but obvious point that people are not taking to heart <laughs> if that's the case given the amount of anger it has spurred in turn they've set up this empathy exercise and it's very much insane how many people became ellie or took the character of ellie to a uh, real life extreme as if they're mourning a you know as if someone right. killed their parent and they need to be responsible for it and i, I do wonder looking back on it in, in retrospect i wonder if those people putting themselves in ellie's shoes almost had more of the intended experience than i did because i do get the sense that they kind of wanted you to feel that anger and that i didn't have the intended response uh, and just sort of being detached from Joel. I think there's a dissonance between player and Ellie at some point. Like, it grows up. The game definitely intends to foster that at a specific point. Whether it exists right now is another question. It tries to contextualize Ellie's rage. The way Joel's death is presented is like for no good reason. You don't know exactly. That is, that is the biggest thing to me. That Because I've, I have seen this all over the place in reading other reception. That players were, you know, that, that at this point in time, they just saw somebody that got killed for no good reason. Those specific words. Or later on, that they're surprised to find out that, you know, this is Abby's background. It's like, man, these people have clearly risked a lot to come here. Yep. You know, it's clear <laughs> they're on a mission. There's a danger just in existing in this world and coming down here. Why would my assumption as a player be that there is no good reason for this? Why would that ever occur to me? <laughs> I feel like the obvious thing is probably the fireflies. I kind of hoped it was messier than that because we know that Joel has, has screwed over, you know, innumerable people before that. And I was kind of hoping it would just be one of them. But regardless of who it was, my assumption was 
Well, obviously, you know, these people did a very dangerous thing that takes a real toll on you. They must have a good reason for doing it. Why would I assume otherwise? There's a point, first day of Seattle, when uh, Tina kind of like asked Ellie, could it be these guys? Could it be these guys? And Ellie just said, there's no point in guessing. Joel crossed a lot of people. <laughs> he has done some right. really she, bad she stuff. Right, she even knows oh, yeah. that there, there are plenty of people that would probably feel justified in doing what just happened to him. There's no doubt in anyone's mind about that. We don't know this now, but she knows a lot more than... Yeah, but you might say that she ends up, you know, incurring maybe more more guilt from the, uh, an outside judge's eyes than is apparent right now. But the game basically now begins. The tutorial is over. <laughs> yes, the guitar part was a very false beginning. <laughs> this is the yeah. equivalent of Stara's death. This is where your late title card should be. Yeah, obviously we forgot to say that you... St- do play as Ellie after you see that scene and you have that sort of feeling of maybe you can save him. Yeah, you, you're you allowed to rush into the room. Yeah. And if Ellie had fired the gun from outside the door, yeah, yeah, walk yeah. In, she could have done it. Instead, she has to walk towards Abby. Rookie mistake. Oh, there are some some interesting points here to touch on if you're if you're trying to gauge the righteousness, I guess, of the group. Because Manny has no issue whipping out his pistol and approaching Ellie to kill her afterwards. Uh, mm. They are all, you know, they all insult Joel. They spit on him. They call him names. I think Jordan attempts to kill Ellie. You know, so it's it's interesting that they do view themselves as having a righteous cause, but they are completely, except for maybe Owen and Mel, and then mm. even Abby trying to hold them back. They're perfectly willing to just kill somebody that happened to walk in the room. Right. With no, no sense to be accounted for. for At that point, I don't think we know exactly. They, they did this really smart. We don't hear what's said. Yeah. Rage. Blotting out everything. That whole scene was grounded by Owen, and we'll find out his role later on. But yeah, I mean, the interesting part of that, knowing what actually happened there, was that most of them were pro-killing them, yeah. which is a mirror of Joel's mentality. With, like, killing Merlin, you would just come after her. Exactly, yeah. They didn't want to kill Ellie or Tommy because... They deserved it. yeah. No loose ends. It's a kind of pragmatic thinking that would lead Joel to preserve Ellie's life at the cost of everybody else's. Which turns out would have been probably the right goal. Yeah, oh, it definitely would have been. It's an interesting perspective. The lesson of the game, kids, is that, you know, revenge is only bad because... Kill them. You let them live. <laughs> just kill Just kill everybody. No loose ends. Then you don't have to worry about revenge. Exactly. That was my takeaway. You can stop the game now. So, funny thing about this, I was so much in disbelief that Joel didn't die. I knew it would happen. Oh, even after that? Yeah. (laughs) I I knew it would happen. I just didn't think it would happen then and like that. And I think a lot of it is also because of marketing. Like, I was fooled by it as well. Because they faked some... um, Oh, do they show Joel in Seattle or something? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's, That's really messed up. That's great. I was sad, but at the same time confused and at the same time angry. And then (laughs) at some point, Dina comes and says, we found you. Ellie's still crying. And the next scene is basically Ellie alone in her little room garage outside of Joel's house. There's like a moment where uh, Tommy comes and brings, brings some food. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And at one point, Ellie says, Joel would be halfway to Seattle right now, if it was us. And for 
I took that as like, oh, Joel is alive <laughs> and he's halfway to, to Seattle. Oh, for some uh, reason. It's quite a jump, but all right. <laughs> I'm with that dude was so messed up, he couldn't even utter Ellie's name at the end. <laughs> I mean, that's, again, I'm going to say this word that does not really fit the scene, but that's so beautifully done. I feel like you and, and people like you had the had the intended experience here because I I just felt none of this. I mean, it wasn't a negative on the game to me, mm. but there, there was no anger. There was no grief. There was no, I was like, well, this seems like, you know, a fairly logical consequence for, and I, and I thought this would be like widely accepted before I read the internet stuff, because my recollection of the reception after the last of us one was that people praised Joel for being a fairly complex and dark character and not necessarily you know, one that we a would hero. admire as a hero. Like that is how a lot of the rhetoric about the first game was when it came out. Yeah. So when I when I got past this that. point in the second game and looked at the narrative on the internet, I was like, did I just miss like years of <laughs> of uh, retconning that? Come on, man. <laughs> There's so much Papa Joel and all these weird. I mean, we we like him in the sense that we like having a good character to watch. Not, I don't like him in the sense that I wish I knew the guy. But in any case, I think grieving or whatever you were going through at that point. That is the goal of the game at this point. And Ellie has a nice moment where, Oh, sorry. I'm going to back up a little bit. Tommy says, no, Joel wouldn't. <laughs> uh, I'll get to that. What I was about to say, Joel would not be across the country. He disagrees with Ellie. And I happen to agree with Tommy because uh, Joel was pragmatic above <laughs> all things. It's not that I don't think he would do it because it's immoral or he would care about leaving the town defenseless. I just think they have so little information to go on. They're so unlikely to find them. The odds, they don't even know. The odds of everything working out the way you want it are just so slim, it seems like a bad idea. I'll accept that Joel, as of the end of The Last of Us 1, and in this game, might be a different person that cares enough about having his Sarah still around, that he could potentially be angered to that point, but at least Joel, the Joel that I knew for the bulk of The Last of Us 1, would not do it. So I think all the... That's left for Jackson is just some uh, prep for the journey. Yeah. There's a beautiful um, going through Joel's house. Oh, yes. Yeah. He has a nice house. Which is sort of like a, a wake, I guess. I love the details they managed to put into it because I think details matter a lot more in this kind of situation. And this is something I've loved about films as well that deal with this sort of thing where there's this house that has been left. It's not neat. Some dishes are unwashed and the bed is unmade. You don't plan for your death. Yeah. And then the person doesn't come back. And you go back to that place and you see all those things being left the way they are. It's a very powerful device for me. So I, I liked kind of building up Joel's life along with this sort of sadness. I, I think Ellie smelling his coat. Yeah, probably the most powerful touch there. It's yeah. very real. You can't see smell, and yet that is the most powerful thing that links you to this feeling. It's a scene about absence. Yeah. And lingering smell of Joel is, is, is the one present still left that she can find in the house. Exactly. It doesn't feel like a possession like the rest of it. It feels like some evidence of his presence. As I said before, this is a game that really, really rewards replaying for all the details. There are so many details here that 
are so much more powerful if you know uh, the entire game. You find the leaflet from yep, a museum in day. the living room. At least comments on it. Oh, that was a nice day. You have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. I think all the flashbacks that you end up experiencing throughout the game have a call somewhere else in the game that you can find, which might be a bit too neat, but it is kind of fun on replay to see that. Like when uh, Dina and Ellie are going through one of the abandoned towns earlier on patrol there's a conversation about what's your record infected kill count on a patrol before and ellie says oh it must be a day i had with joel where we we just ran into like a dozen of them and you end up living that day at at some point in a flashback later in the game when you go through that uh, hotel for guitar strings but we'll get to that Uh, but i think all the flashbacks there's like if you if you go back through the game you can find calls earlier in the game to them it's a rewarding replay for sure. Yeah. I didn't see this in my playthrough. I just saw it on the internet. But apparently on the nightstand in Joel's bedroom, when you go through his house, there's a Space for Dummies book. <laughs> Replaying and seeing that is just heartbreaking. A dad caring enough about his daughter to, to put himself through this misery of having to learn about space. Exactly. All right, so we're only two hours into the podcast and... And we're only um, one hour into the game. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, <I'm> <laughs> in this 30-hour <laughs> game. Um, oh. so, that's Jackson. Yeah, that's Jackson. <laughs> you can look forward to Seattle Day 1 podcast next year uh, around this time. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. I, I do think the there's a... We'll see if this ends up bearing out. I think there's a lot to unpack in Jackson disproportionate to its runtime so hopefully hopefully we don't commit other people the people kind enough to listen to this to (laughs) well famous last words i guess thank you all for listening to this first part of our the last of us part two cast and we'll be back very soon with the next part which will cover the first three days in seattle so once again thank you very much for listening and hope to have you back soon